Paul Fritschner, Rick Broering, and Rick, uh, I think we're trying something new a little bit here. Uh, hopefully this works out for everybody checking in. Uh, we'll give this a second here to let some other people uh, kind of get into this and, and start to tune in. But I think that this is something that going forward, you and I are going to try to use a little bit more of. Um, but uh, first of all, how's everything going? How was the uh, Christmas? How was the New Year's? Uh, it was it was great. You know, I mean, I think everyone's heard my opinion on Christmas before. I don't think we need to go too much farther into that because this is a family show. We don't need profanities. But uh, <laughs> it looks like we are broadcasting live on Facebook and Twitter. So that's that's a good sign. Everything good with you, I assume, Paul? Everything is fantastic, although it would be nice if we were uh, playing basketball right around now. Yeah, I thought we were past that at this point coming into the year. And now here we are. Once again, right back in the same situation it felt like we were in last year. And I'm dealing with it from both sides, right? Like it's it's a constant just texting back and forth with people on the Xavier side. What's going on with you guys this week? And then same thing on the NKU side. Like, am I going to be traveling out of town for a game this week or not? Are we going to be doing coaches shows or not? So uh, you're just constantly checking in, trying to figure out what's going to actually get done from week to week because of COVID-19 at this point. Yeah, and that's probably a good place to start with this too is – sort of the honestly disaster it's kind of been trying to get this whole ship uh, to sail for Xavier over the last week or so. So basically where Xavier is at right now, Xavier obviously hasn't played since Villanova and they've been trying hard. It's not to Xavier's discredit for how hard they've been trying to get a game over the last probably week or so. Uh, they've had at least three teams that we know of South Carolina state, Iona, North Texas, those are the three we know of. There may be more, but those are at least the three we know of. Um, and for various reasons that were all kind of out of Xavier's control, none of them came to fruition. So whereas Xavier thought they were going to be playing tomorrow, it's not going to end up happening. So just like last year, and I tweeted this out last night, where Xavier went 20 days in between games before going to Hinkle after a COVID pause, and you play that game, and then there was another little bit of a break in there. So now it's going to be 17 days between games for Xavier going to Hinkle. Uh, Rick, what can you tell us? You wrote a little bit on the message board and everything, but kind of give everybody a breakdown of what we've been going back and forth with, with Xavier trying to get a game for tomorrow night that's not going to end up happening. Yeah, well, the biggest thing at first was just trying to get the Big East to approve a non-conference game because it would have put them over the allowed limit of games for the season and – um, the, the Big East was really slow to react on that. And the reason for the Big East being slow to react is because they said, well, we still want to try to reschedule all of these games. But we already saw last year, that's probably not going to be the reality. It's probably not going to happen. And even if it does, to me, be creative. It's a simple solution. You can look at these non-conference games, which let's face it, most of the teams Xavier was talking about now, two of the ones, North Texas and Iona that you named, were two of the bigger name teams. Those would have been legit games. But for the most part, a South Carolina state out of the MEAC or some of the other schools that had came and went during this process were throwaway type games. They didn't really matter. So at the end of the day, if you ended up playing 31, you could have just looked at that extra non-conference game and thrown it out the window and not counted towards their net or, or their overall record or what have you. So I don't understand why the Big East wasn't quicker to be more flexible about this and be more creative. Um, I do know like the Rick Pitino thing, Rick Pitino keeps putting out there that he's asking all these schools to play him and they just won't. It's not exactly what's happening. Rick Pitino is asking everyone for a home and home. He wants high yeah. majors to come to his gym next year so he can get a big win on his resume and, and keep building that program there. And a lot of them were not so uh, 
happy to do that. They were saying, look, we'll buy you for 90, 95,000, whatever you need, but we're not coming to your gym next year. And, and uh, again, I don't even think Xavier could have gotten something worked out there because the Big East didn't let them know in enough time for Iona. Uh, but as it turned out, South Carolina State was the team that they came closest to playing. I think both you and I had heard that they got pretty far down that road of potentially having a game on Tuesday. And South Carolina State was the team that I had heard it was going to happen against. And then in the last 24 hours, it kind of went out the window. Well, I mean, it was to the point where we were told that it was going to happen. I mean, like basic, like I I had heard from people like, hey, this, this is going to happen. It wasn't even so much that I, and I hadn't heard that it was going to be South Carolina State till a little bit later on in the process. But it was kind of to the point where it was this is going to happen on Tuesday. And then it just kind of went dark and nothing happened. And uh, so now there is no game until Butler on Tuesday or on Friday. So, yeah, it, it, it's it's a little disappointing the way it's worked out. And you look at some of the other conferences and somebody message, uh, mentioned it on the message board earlier. I don't know if it was Bowling Green. There was somebody along the line uh, that had a game canceled and they said, hey, get them down to Centos on Tuesday. Oh, wait, I think it was the Mac shuffled games around, brought their Saturday game up to Wednesday. I don't know if you've talked to anybody. I, I've tried to kind of pry a little bit, but I, I haven't really gotten too much as to why the big East isn't being more proactive in their rescheduling. I, I, okay. That's the same kind of thing I've gotten to. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's really, it really doesn't make sense. I think what happened is everyone was thinking they were going to be in the clear this year. They came in just thinking all the players are vaccinated. We should be good to go by midway through the season, maybe by the new year, we're going to be lifting mandates and everything's going to be pretty much back to normal. And you saw like beginning of December, Xavier on campus, but allowed everyone to take the masks off. And then all of a sudden, two weeks later, masks go back on and we're right back in this mess. So I can understand to a certain extent why they thought things were going to lessen and why they'd be in a better spot this year. But after what happened last year, you should have had the contingency plans ready to go. And you should have understood that that meant being flexible and allowing these teams to do things that put them in the best position. Now, I will say one thing that's not, probably being portrayed in the right light is all these teams are also looking out for their own best interest. So yes. all of these coaches are going to tell you they'll play anyone, anytime, anywhere, and they're trying like heck to reschedule these games, but they also all want these games to be played on their terms at the right place at the right time. Doesn't conflict or put them in a bad spot for another game that might be a couple days away. So you got to remember that too, and take it all with a grain of salt, what you're hearing from both the coaches and the, the league commissioners. But I do think it's just, the whole being allowed to play an extra buy game, essentially, which is what Xavier was hoping to do here on, on Tuesday, that should have been an easy solution. And the biggies should have been ready for it. They should have been able to give Xavier the quick okay, and Xavier should be playing somebody tomorrow night. But as it stands, that's not going to happen. So we'll have to wait until Friday. And I think it's probably worth talking about you know, the issues or the concerns or the problems that come with a layoff like this, too. Yeah, for sure. Because now Xavier, they had the Christmas break. And, you know, Travis talked about how he didn't have a great Christmas because you're coming off the Villanova game, which you know we had talked about in our last podcast. But even going back to that Villanova game where it leaves such a sour taste in your mouth because you're so close to winning that game. You have such a good first half. Everything falls apart in the second half. And then that that is what you're sitting on now. And the other thing, too, is you're hanging your hat on this Butler game on Friday hoping that Butler can play, and they've had their own issues as well. So you're hoping that Butler is able to play because if Butler cancels, then you're going, 
what is that? What would that be? 20, 21 days. And you're playing Villanova right back again at home without a game in between. And Villanova just played a shorthanded Seton Hall. So like this is this is a really kind of tough situation that Xavier's in right now. Yeah, that could be a disastrous setup. You don't want to go right back into playing Villanova again with your, your chance to play them at home. That, so that's not ideal how that's setting up. But one thing I do think is worth remembering that part of what last part of what made last year so difficult for Xavier is they had the layoffs but they also weren't the same team from week to week. Like one week they'd be out without a guy or two, even though they were playing games because that guy was quarantined or, or in contact tracing, what have you. That's the bigger concern to me is not so much. Do you have the layoffs? Cause that's not ideal, obviously, but to some extent it, it can be used for some good things and it be, can be good for guys to get healthy and recharge and all of that, where it really becomes a problem is if you have to start playing games and you're not 100% if you're missing a guy or two. So obviously that's, to, to a certain extent, out of your control, and we don't know what's going to happen with that. But right now, Xavier is fully healthy, and if anything, right now, Zach Fremantle is getting some extra time here to maybe get closer to 100%, knock off a little bit more of that rust, and and hopefully get closer to being back to the guy that he was a season ago. Have you had any conversations about that? Have you kind of gotten a vibe of what Xavier's been doing over the last couple of weeks to where they're trying to get at to be ready for Butler? Yeah, I think the, the nice thing about this to a certain extent is when you know you have a little bit of an extended period of time where you're not going to be playing games, it allows you to actually work on some things that during normally during the season, it goes from one game to the next, and you're basically just in maintenance mode and game prep mode for the next opponent. Right now, you can almost go back to preseason mode with this extended stretch and say, okay, what fundamentals do we want to get back to? What certain things do we really want to work on? Is there some new install that we might want to implement right now on the offensive or defensive end? And the other thing that they've been able to do is get some live action going of their own. They played the inner squad scrimmage that you saw Adam posting about the other day, and they've been able to get a lot of live action and have some really competitive practices. Now, as far as like Zach Fremantle specifically, I've heard some pretty good things about him, and I hear that you know he's coming along and, and he's looking more like himself. But the thing for me is I'm not as real, I'm not as much concerned about is Zach playing offensively the way we know he's capable of playing. I'm much more concerned about is his defense going to improve because quite honestly, his defense wasn't good enough last year. And yeah, he looks even a little worse to start this year, but it was the same issues we saw from him last year. So I don't know that that's as much a, a result of his injury holding him back as it is a, a a hole in his game right now and something that he needs to improve on. So I think that's the bigger question that I would have. And I, I don't think you can really learn a whole lot or tell a whole lot from just practicing. Yeah. And then, like you said, it's tough. So you bring in the officials or whatever you may have, like Adam was talking about, you bring in the officials, you do that kind of a scrimmage, you, whatever, but you know, and, and there is off of that too, something to be said for, you know, we've talked about this before where you bring somebody like South Carolina state in, are you, are you, it's almost like, are you getting better in practice than you are rolling the ball out there against somebody like South Carolina state where you're maybe competing five on five in practice. So what, what would be your take on that? Well, I think the the easy answer is you can do both in this situation, right? Like that South Carolina yeah. state game, you're not really worried about losing. So True. you can yeah. go ahead and play your full scrimmage this week and also play the South Carolina state game. And I think there's just something about playing in the arena with fans with the the refs and everything seeming more normal 
that's different than competing against your guys in an empty gym in practice. And I think it's just like, in terms of like shooting and all of that stuff, there's just a different impact on the game when you're in a real live atmosphere versus a practice atmosphere. So I do think there's value in playing a a opponent like South Carolina state, even though they were outside the top 300 in Ken Palm and really wouldn't have been much competition for Xavier. Yeah, sure. Uh, To anybody watching, listening right now, if you want to comment in a question, I know on Facebook, I saw uh, Steve Knoll just did it. Um, There was no comment comment, though, Steve. At least I didn't see it. No, it's it's an emoji. It's an emoji. He wished us a happy new year. Yeah, I went over to Facebook. I checked it out. Happy new year, Steve. Uh, But if anybody is on Facebook, I don't know how to do it on Twitter because I used to know how to do it with Periscope. But if you are on uh, Facebook, you can write in the comment section. Uh, there we go. There's a Facebook question for you right there. Um, how often do the players and staff test? And is the standard to still uh, play seven scholarship players and one coach? I'm going to I'm going to say something real quick here, and I'm going to give a quick shout out to Xavier women's basketball. Who? Um, so I I with Mike Schmaltz broadcast almost every Xavier women's basketball game. And on the last two games, they have only had seven available players. And they did play with just the seven available players. And they beat Butler by 22 points two games ago with just seven players. And they weren't even the seven players that normally play. Um, they they brought in a couple of bench players. One had a first career double-double. So we have seen it, at least on the women's side, there is precedent to just playing with the seven players. Um, now, I think there is, on the men's side, some ambiguity uh, that, like, Okay, did I'm not, I'm not saying anything one way or the other. I th- I'm just kind of throwing it out there because this was the most recent game with UConn. Like Hurley gets, you know, Hurley tests positive, and then you know you, you're you're still working through some injuries. Like, is that some gamesmanship to say you're not going to play? Are they? You know, he comes out later in the week and says that the whole team is sick. You know. Like there, there's a lot going on there. There are a lot of dynamics, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit ago, Rick. With there's a lot, I think, now with the forefoot rule having been rescinded, that there's maybe a little bit of gamesmanship at least going on. Uh, as far as the first question goes, how often do the staff and players test? At least at Xavier, it, they're only testing if they're uh, if they're showing symptoms. They're not testing like every day like they were last season or whatever, every other day, whatever it was last season. They're only testing now, unless it's changed in the last five or six days, they're only testing if they're showing symptoms. Yeah, and from what everyone that I've talked to around other schools, that seems to be what everyone's doing is they're not required to test regularly because pretty much on most campuses, you're required to be vaccinated. So everyone is vaccinated. They're not required to test. But what what happens is it's basically left up to the trainer from what I understand, at least some of the schools that I've talked to, and that's going to create a a lot of pressure on a a trainer and also some ambiguity there between how often do, or what, what do certain schools define as symptoms, right? Oh no, he has the cold versus we got to start testing these guys and then contact tracing, testing some other guys, what have you. So I think you're going to have different schools handling that a little bit differently. And then in terms of the second question, yeah, you're absolutely right. Once they eliminated the forfeit rule, which I think most people felt like was the right move, you left yourself open to exactly what UConn did, which is say, hey, we got a couple guys injured and our head coach is one of the people who tested positive. We can't play. And then they're saying, 
well, actually, we, we didn't have seven players, but we don't exactly know how they arrived at that decision and whether it was, well, there were certain guys that might have been in contact tracing, but we didn't test them or they didn't te- actually test positive. And you've got Hurley making some weird comments to the media saying that the NCAA wanted a lot of information and we tried to prove to the best of our ability that we didn't have seven guys available. I, here's the thing. At the end of the day, you can't win this situation if you're the NCAA or if you're an individual conference. If you're forcing kids to play under these circumstances when the school is saying, hey, we don't have enough healthy guys, you're going to look like the bad guy and no one's going to be on your side. So yep. it is what it is, but that but that is what's going to happen is people are going to do what UConn did and game the system and, and try to make sure they're at, at 100% when they play the best teams in their conference. So appreciate yep. the question, Steve. We got another question. One from Steve another. to another. There we go. Yeah. Uh, do we think Fremantle needs to bulk up or is an effort issue on defense? Rick, you can go first on this one. I think it could be a little bit of both, but much more the latter, in my opinion. Like, There's been plenty of guys who are 6'9", 220 pounds, which is about what Fremantle is, I believe, that are better defenders than him You know, and, and have about the same amount of athleticism. So I thought they were going to make it a, a – focus to bulk him up this offseason. I don't know how much that happened. I think he looked like he was in better shape when he came into the preseason, but I don't know that he looked particularly strong, stronger or heavier. Um, but at this point, really to me, it's more of a, an effort thing, but also maybe just focusing on the right things with Zach. It seems like he loses focus on the defensive end a lot and just doesn't offer a lot of resistance. So yeah, mostly I would say it's an effort thing. And I think that's something that during this layoff, they probably spent a lot of time working on trying to make sure ball screen coverages and what lineups work best defensively when they're changing out personnel in the front court, because that's one of the biggest uh, solutions that the staff has to find as the season goes on, they have some talented front court players this year. Nunchi's given them a big lift, but who are they best playing? What combination are they best with? Is it the, the smaller lineup with Colby Jones at the four and either Zach or Jack at the five? Is it the bigger lineup with both Zach and Jack in at the same time? Or is it your more normal lineup where Jerome Hunter's at the four and you're playing Zach or Jack at the five? And I just don't know what the right answer is, is at this point. Well, and especially being your third year in the program too, like how much of it would be, you don't want to say that a lot of it is is still like learning the system or anything like that, because being three years in the program now, you'd like to think that a, an upperclassman like that would, would know the system and appreciate what you have to do. So it, effort makes it, effort almost makes it seem like he's not giving a lot of effort defensively. Although sometimes it does kind of look like a, like you said on the message board, like kind of like a turnstile defense, but you know, at some point it becomes a situation where he's either just not physically able to get in front of somebody or to defend. And I don't think that's the issue. So then at what point does it just become, hey, you, you're going to have to do this differently or we're going to fix this in the system so that you don't get exposed this way? Yeah, and I don't think he's ever going to be a good defender or a really good defender, but he has to be better than he is right now. And that certainly is an effort that you can get better than he is right now. And he's about as bad as it gets for a guy who should be playing starter like minutes, you know, there, and there's plenty of worse defenders out there other than Zach Fremantle, but they aren't guys that you rely upon guys that are talented enough to be playing starter minutes, guys that have his ratio of size and athleticism. So 
that's it. He it is one area where he definitely has to work on his game. And it, I think the why it's looked so much worse as we've gone on in his career is because other teams have figured out that it's really a weak link that they can pick on. And so you just saw Villanova late in that game really went after him time after time. And it, it gets to the point where you almost can't play him in important situations. And that's obviously not going to be a net win for Xavier overall if they end up having to bench one of their most talented players because they can't get a stop with him on the floor. So. And, and how much offensively do you think or defensively can you balance out offensively with Zach? What, like, where do you think that balance is, Rick, with if you need somebody like Zach in there in the last five minutes of a game? And we went through that on the last podcast of if you need to win a basketball game, who are your five? And neither one of us had Zach in that five right now. So where do you see Zach's off? Because obviously we've seen the, the point totals and what he can do offensively. But at what point does the defense and the lack of his defense right now kind of outweigh that offensive possibility. Well, I think we're seeing it right now, right? Because he's not quite the offensive player that he was a year ago right now. He's still knocking some of that rust off after sitting out for, what was it, four or five months with his yeah. uh, foot injury. So when he's not at the the tip top of his game offensively, his defense isn't good enough to warrant him being on the court for important moments or extended periods. I, at least I don't think so, especially when you have Jack Nungy in there and you can put a Colby Jones in at the four or at times, even a Jerome Hunter has been a better option. Now I don't think that's like a long-term thing. And I'm not saying Zach Fremantle should be benched and quite, in fact, quite the opposite. I think it's on both Zach and the coaches to figure out how do they get him to a point to where he can be out there in the final minutes of game. So um, sure. Yeah, just want to say thanks to Steve for sending those questions, and uh, he he mentioned thank you for the, the Xavier coverage. Another question here from PJ Debbie White: What do you think of Edwards getting more minutes? Freshman Cesar Edwards in the front court. Uh, I think the thing with Cesar is we've seen what his physical ability is. We've seen his ability in practice to hit shots. We've seen how he can size up and match defensively. You know, with some of these players at this at this level like physically and skill wise it seems like he's not maybe all that far behind but just learning the system getting acclimated to the college game getting himself involved in this kind of a a a level now at the big east i'm not sure if you're going to see a huge increase in minutes for him uh i would probably would lean no probably at this point just because of where he is and where the roster is but uh, I think down the line, at least, he's not somebody to just say, oh, you know, he's going to transfer in a year because he hasn't played at all. Um, I, he, he's We've seen in practice, too, like the potential that he has um, just kind of, you know, being young, putting it up there. Yeah, I was really high on Cesar coming into this year as a recruit, but I also realized you know, looking at the front court situation in front of them, especially with the addition of Jack Nungy and Jerome Hunter, that there weren't going to be a lot of minutes available for any freshman bigs uh, out of the gate unless they were just essentially five-star type talents, which you don't typically yeah. land uh, at Xavier. So um, I think Cesar is a big part of their plans going forward. I think he's developing at a pretty good rate, is what you would deem typical for a freshman. And I think he's got a lot of talent. I don't think he's going to see more minutes this year, at least not anything significant at this point just because they've got too many other guys that, that that's the thing right now they need to figure out how to play the guys that are already out there 
and get the most out of them. I don't think they need to add more players into that front court mix. I think if anything, you may see less of the bigs playing and more of the small lineup. Because if you go to some of like the lineup efficiency rankings and metrics, their best lineups are typically with Jerome Hunter or Colby Jones playing the four. So yeah, I don't think there's going to be more minutes available for another center. And when you talk about like down low and you're talking about the post, you know, another player that we haven't seen a ton of to this year is uh, Ben Stanley, who hasn't gotten a lot of minutes. And he's obviously coming off the ACL injury and everything like that. But still, Ben is somebody that got more minutes last year than he's gotten so far this year. Um, so have you heard anything kind of about where he's at or what they think of him or any well, I mean, update the thing, there? The thing with Ben is once he got back to being fully cleared and they said he was about at 100%, he started playing a little bit and he wasn't playing very well. And I think in his mind, he just wasn't moving the same. And he basically told the coaching staff, I'm not right yet. Uh, so he sort of took himself out for another couple of weeks. And from my understanding, he is available. He is fully cleared now at this point. Um, but he's just not quite there. And I've heard you hear that a lot with guys who have those catastrophic knee injuries that sometimes it just doesn't feel right for a year or so. And I think the problem for Ben is he's undersized and a lot of his game was his strength and his athleticism and his explosiveness. And since he doesn't quite have that, he's really kind of in a spot where he's, he's a tweener at this level, you know, it was a little bit different when he's at Hampton in the big East. It's tough to be an undersized forward that doesn't have your full explosiveness. And I think sure. that's where he's finding himself right now. All right, so let's uh, let's kind of take a look forward here, Rick, at, at where we've come from, from Villanova, now looking forward here toward this week. What do you think the, the biggest thing is for Xavier focusing in on Butler, right? Butler, not, not the Butler of old. This is a Butler team that's kind of had a rough start uh, to the season and it's not somebody that we've necessarily expected a, a ton out of this year, but you know, they start off the Big East with a win over DePaul, um, but they got blown out by Purdue. They had that three-game losing streak in there in the beginning of the season, Michigan State, Houston, and Texas A&M. Michigan State and Houston, obviously, both good teams. Um, so, you know, Butler, 103rd in Ken Palm right now, not exactly anything to, to write home about, but it's in Indianapolis. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about this Butler game and kind of where you see Xavier coming off of this layoff and how to handle a team like this. Well, like we talked about earlier in the podcast, this is a game you really want to play if you're Xavier because hopefully it's a get-right game. Now, it's still a Big East opponent. It's still at their gym. Hinkle's not an easy place to play. And, you know, Butler fans and the Butler program see this as a rivalry really at this point. I think most Xavier people do as well. So um, I don't think a win comes easy here by any stretch of the imagination. And it really hasn't during Travis Steele's career. I think he lost his first two games at Butler. And then last year they ended up winning by 13 or 15, yeah. something like that. So um I expect a, a tough game, but it's really a game if you're Xavier that you hope is a get-right game before you have to go play Villanova again. Now, I will say I have been to three games at Hinkle, Xavier, and Butler, and Xavier is 0-3 in those games. I will be there on Friday, so we're going to hope that uh, Xavier turns it around. Well, I think it becomes very easy for Xavier Nation at that point if they do lose. <laughs> I think we all know what the issue is then. It won't be fire steel. It will be get rid of Fritchner. 
Just get me out of here. Yeah, no. If if Xavier loses on Friday, I I guess what I'm I'm probably excommunicated, right? You're not hearing me on Monday. I'm out of here. Nobody wants to hear me on Monday if Xavier loses on Friday. Yeah, I'll be getting my fourth podcast co-host in the last like, <laughs> six months or whatever it is. So uh, I'd rather you not pick up your fourth loss in a row. But I mean, like the Butler team did win at Oklahoma. You know, I mean, it's not yeah. like. You know, they're, they're not like terrible by any stretch of the imagination. And again, it's at their gym. So um, for Xavier, I just think the biggest thing is you've got to make a few shots. We've seen those instances where they go cold from the outside and, and you always worry about that on the road. So if they make a few shots, they should be OK. And then the thing that you really want to see them get better at is just getting attacked in those ball screen situations. We had thought earlier in the season when they stopped hard hedging everything and they used the bigs and drop coverages and, and did more switching that they had really found it, uh, something that helped them. And they had turned a corner in terms of their ball screen coverages. Villanova exploited it again in the end of that game. And they, that's really how they ended up winning the game in a lot of ways. So um, I, I, I still think that the, the drop coverages has made them a lot better than when they were hard hedging everything. But I think you also have to adjust a little bit. One thing I noticed that Villanova did really good is they came off that screen and they never slowed up. That their their guards didn't second guess or, or sort of survey the drop coverage and see where the defenders were at. They came off the ball screen and just flew downhill right at the big man and basically turned it into a switch for Xavier. Because what happens there in that drop coverage is the big man backs up into the lane, but for a second he's kind of guarding the ball just from several feet away and hoping that his guard that was originally guarding the ball can recover in time to where he never really has to pick it up. Well, Villanova wasn't giving them that chance to recover. They were coming off a good screen and coming right downhill at Fremantle and Nunji and saying, no, you're going to have to guard me as I try to get to the rim. And ideally, especially in Nunji's case, that length makes it tough for them to score around the rim, but Villanova's guards weren't having trouble with that. And I think part of the reason for that was Nunji and Fremantle were getting caught off guard. They were thinking, oh, I just have to drop into the paint and stay here for a second and my guard's going to get back. Well, no, not the way Villanova was playing it. They're coming downhill right at you. You've got to stop and cut off the ball and play good defense for a second or two, and and they just weren't able to do that. So hopefully that's something this week in practice that they saw in film, they're able to work on, and the coaches are able to kind of get right before uh, other teams try to exploit the same exact thing. Yeah, and Bryce Enzi and, and Bo Hodges have both been hurt uh, this year kind of dealing with stuff. The whole Butler team really has been dealing with a lot of injuries and, and just different things with really a war of attrition. So I'll be interested tomorrow night. I think it's tomorrow night. Let me check here. Yeah, tomorrow night, uh, Tuesday, Butler will be home against Seton Hall. So I think that'll be a good test because Butler – uh, they played against DePaul and now they're going to have to come back and play Seton Hall at home. And I don't know, I haven't seen if, if uh, Obiagu is going to be playing for Seton Hall. I know they were missing a couple of guys against uh, Villanova. Um, so I, I don't know what either team's status. I haven't seen anything from either side, what, what their injury report looks like, but both teams are banged up. So that could well, be a good one tomorrow. Yeah, and I mean, it doesn't even really matter what the injury status says for these teams. Like, we showed up to call the uh, NKU versus Milwaukee game the other night, and three starters aren't playing on it, like, for between the two teams. So it's like everything that you are preparing and you got your lineup cards and everything, it just goes right out the window an hour before tip-off when you arrive at the arena. So that's just what we're dealing with. You don't, and, and, and all these coaches always talk about, oh, we worry more about ourselves than the opponent. You know, it's not about, what they're going to do. It's about what we do and us playing to the best of our ability. 
That's never been more true. I always thought that was kind of a dumb cliche. This year, they're right. Like, you just really need to focus on yourself and make sure you know what you want to work on and you know what you want to accomplish because that lineup that you're playing across from you on any given night could be totally different than what you expected coming into the game. And it really is crazy how some of this has played out with COVID where you have you might have somebody out at the last second. And I go back to the women's thing from, from last week. I mean, I was that we found out two hours before a game that the game wasn't going to happen. I was supposed to be at Hinkle on New Year's Eve for Creighton and Butler and the women's. And I found out at like 11 o'clock that morning for a two o'clock game that Butler had just popped a couple more positives or whatever it was. It was an issue on Butler's side the night before they had had seven players. And then the next morning, all of a sudden they didn't. And so, you know, it's obviously like all this is a fluid situation where you just never know. And especially right now with all this COVID going on, you, you just, as they always say, like you said, control the controllables. And right now, if you're a team walking into Hinkle, Seton Hall or Xavier this week, all you can do is figure out, all right, Butler may have these guys available. They may not, but all you can do is, is go forward with what you have. So uh, Troy here. At what point do you think Steele will commit to uh, Colby at the four-guard four lineup? You think Travis is going to tailor his lineups based on defense or offense prowess, Rick? Um, so the, the Colby at the four thing, I think we're, we've already seen him start playing that lineup a lot. He's gone to it a lot more recently, and that's been one of the more frequently used lineups over the last few games, and it's been one of their better lineups, quite honestly. So I think you're going to continue to see it now – in terms of committing to it, I don't know exactly what you mean by that. Like it's never going to be only that and they're no longer playing Jerome Hunter or they're no longer playing the two bigs together ever. I think it's going to be mostly lineup dependent, depending on the opposition. But like I've already said in this show and a few other times here when we've been talking about this stuff, I think that's the most important question as we go forward in this season is what is the right combination of front court players to play together? And that answer may change from game to game. And that's the hard part for the coaching staff. They, I don't, I don't think it's always going to be the same answer. But uh, for the biggest thing to me is Zach Fremantle has to get up to speed first. Once he's back to being fully himself, then you have a better idea of okay, who are we best with? Are we really best if we have Jack and Zach on the floor together, or is that just not going to work because we lose too much creativity and playmaking on the offensive side and defensively, it becomes really difficult to guard ball screens. Um, to me, that's more than likely going to be the case, and you're going to have to be creative about how both of those guys can play as many minutes as possible, but probably spending more of their minutes at the five than anywhere else. And then, you know, aside from that, it becomes where's Jerome Hunter at? Is he going to start making shots? Can he make fewer uh, IQ, bad decision-type plays on the offensive end, take take fewer bad shots? If so, then he can give you some some decent defense – but I don't know that it's as good as you are when Kobe Colby's playing the four. So um, I, yeah, I, I think that's where it's at right now. And that's just going to be a question for the rest of the season that the staff has to continue to ponder and, and try to find the best lineup in terms of whether he's going to tail it, tailor his lineups based on defense or offense. I'm assuming this goes back to everyone getting mad about Jason Carter. Uh, it seems like whatever everything comes back to, I think he is going to try to play the best five guys on both ends of the court. It's not, football where you play an offensive lineup and a defensive lineup. So I think mostly he's going to try to play the best overall lineup. But again, that's, that's the question, right? Are you best? How much can you give up defensively to have the best offense on the floor? 
and vice versa. Like, can if you need to get better defensively, how much does that kill your offensive flow? Can you still make enough shots? That's just a constant question they're going to have to be asking themselves. And the good news is this year they have more options than they have the last few years. So Jack Nungy has really helped make those uh, those two things more one and the same, I think, because he has allowed them to to have a big man that can play through on offense while also raising the level of their defense. Sure. Yeah. All right. So how long is it going to take for Dewan to get the majority of the point guard minutes and to put Scruggs literally anywhere, anywhere else? Uh, well, I mean, we've kind of started to see Dewan take over a little bit. And I, I think that was one of the more disappointing things for me heading into this elongated break is you started to see Dewan get more confidence, right? And that was such an inspiring thing as somebody that's followed this team so closely is to see somebody like Dewan scoring at the rate he was scoring against the teams that he was doing that against and the way he was scoring those points. Like you talked about on the last podcast where he's not just blowing up ball state and fast break dunks for 20 points a game. Like he is earning the 19 points for a career high. He's earning those points that he scored the next game after that. So where you're looking at Dewan now after this lay, after this layoff, and you look at the progress that he had made and the way that he had started to kind of take control. Not Maybe take control was a little dramatic, but just the, the progression that he had made this season. I thought he had started to take a huge step. Uh, so that's that was a little disappointing for me looking at this layoff to say, okay, now where is he going to be in 17 days? It's not like we're talking about a month. It's you know two and a half weeks here, but still – you're hoping that that kind of confidence and everything carries over here two and a half weeks later. As far as Scruggs goes, Rick, I'll let you handle that half of it. Well, I think you're exactly right. You bring up a good point about Dwan. That's maybe one of the biggest hits that this break brings is he was coming into his own and really playing well there. You hope this doesn't kill some of the momentum that he had built uh, going forward. In terms of their lineups. I, I would agree that getting Dwan on the court more and more with the way he is playing is going to be something that they just have to do. Like it's not going to be optional. And that's not, people want to make this a, a thing against Scruggs. That's really not what we're talking about here. It's Dwan is playing really well. You got to get him on the floor more. Now, Tess Scruggs had some weird turnovers recently. Yes. And is if, you know, we talked about Zach Fremantle maybe knocking off some rust and it'd be good for him to kind of regroup and, and have a few weeks off here and, and really practice again. I'd say the same about Paul Scruggs. He had been in a little bit of a rut, had a few games where he wasn't at his best. I think this is probably a good refresher for him, a little time off, and hopefully he comes back 100%. One thing I would maybe caution the Xavier fan base a little about, let's be careful how we're talking about Paul Scruggs. Like, it's a guy that's done a lot for your program, a guy that's really sacrificed a lot, um, a guy who decided to come back when he really didn't have to and most people wouldn't, uh, a guy who's been pretty damn good he's still pretty damn good. He's playing pretty well. I know at times he he's had some frustrating moments and there's been some turnovers recently that uh, certainly he'd like to have back, but let's think about how we're talking about a guy. That's everything you really want your college athletes to be about. And uh, he has a special relationship with the, the fans and you see, you know, all the stuff in the time he makes for kids in the Xavier community and stuff like that. I'd I'd be easy on how I talk about Paul Scruggs personally. 
And along those lines, if anybody's interested, there was uh, he posted his his NIL deal that he posted a link to his uh, shirts or he had, a, I think, a new T-shirt line or something. Was it through Cincy shirts? Yeah, I think uh, you posted Cincy the link. Deal. Yeah. Yeah. Pete Johnson has a separate one that uh, someone designed, but Paul Scruggs has a Cincy shirts deal. So, yeah, I would uh, highly encourage. I think it's awesome that any of these players are able to earn some money and share in a little bit of this profit. So I would highly encourage anyone to go ahead and hook those kids up with the purchase or two of their merchandise. Um, Johnny points out to clarify Scruggs can play one through five, but Dwan is better at point guards. So that's my point. Yeah, we, we got it. Uh, but when you're saying put Scruggs literally anywhere else and some of the other things people say about Paul Scruggs, it's just a little disrespectful to a guy that's been pretty damn good and was one of the most important recruits in Xavier history. Like I would just caution you before you start treating him like you did Jason Carter, maybe, maybe slow, slow the roll a little bit. And I agree. I think he's, you could, the good thing about Paul is he's versatile. You can play him at the two or the three. He's got like a six, eight, six, ten wingspan, whatever it is. So he can guard a lot of positions and you can play Kunkel with him. You can play Dwan with him. You can play multiple other guards with them, and, and that is part of the great thing about Paul. And this isn't saying anything groundbreaking, but I was going back and looking at some of the, my old tweets from Paul. I kind of keyword searched Paul Scruggs' name from some of my tweets over the years uh, the other day. And looking back at the career that Paul has had at Xavier and where he was as a freshman in the two NCAA tournament games that he's played in, and the transition period that he has brought this program to, and then to come stick around – to a team that is for all intents and purposes going to make the NCAA tournament this year. Like if, if you're listening and you're hearing me say that and you're like, Oh my gosh, Paul, what are you talking about? Don't jinx it. Like this team right now, like you can look at any bracketologist, you can look at any ranking ma- like this right now, if the season ended today is like a five seed, four seed borderline type of a team right now in Xavier. Like this is a really, really good Xavier team. And you're led by a fifth-year senior who has given a lot up to come back, like you said, Rick, and has seen this program at probably its lowest point in a long, long time and has stuck through it and come back this year. And he's dealt with, you know, Nate Johnson getting hurt last year, the, the you know, the injuries and everything the way the year before happened, his own injury the year before. Now, granted, there was no tournament that year, but still, like, just so many circumstances that have happened. And he comes back and he does all this. Like, I, I think I can see where there are some frustrations with, okay, it is a fifth year senior. Why, why are some of these turnovers happening? Like, okay, maybe, but the, the leash at this point is long enough that you can say, okay, we're, it's all right. Yeah. And, and again, to Johnny's point, I get it. Like, yeah, Dwan needs to be in the lineup more. I think everyone realizes that. And no one realizes that more than Travis Steele. Like he's been saying since the beginning of the season, he feels like, Dwan is every bit the starter that some of the other guys are. Now, I would argue that Dwan actually got off to a little bit of a slow start this year and didn't really force their hand as much as I thought he was going to. But now that he has started to play really well, there's no doubt. I mean, he's a top 50 recruit. He's a top 50 recruit for a reason. He's really talented. Now that he has a role and you're going to get him on the court as much as you possibly can. So, yeah, I I, um, I think that'll work itself out. That, to me, isn't nearly as much of a concern going forward like their guards are pretty good and if Paul Scruggs if your if your biggest problem is Paul Scruggs is playing the point guard you don't really have much <laughs> of a problem you know what I mean like you're at a pretty good spot Dwan Odom will play pr- plenty of minutes they'll figure it all out uh Bob Meyer wants to know does Kiki's injury make him eligible to be redshirted I would assume so I mean I don't think he played in the minimum of games right to yeah it's yeah be- I 
That's to my understanding, but I, I'm yeah, not a... I'll be honest, Bob, like no one is talking about this at Xavier right now. Like no offense to anyone, but it's just not something that's on the radar, you know? So um, Kiki has obviously fallen well down the uh, the depth chart there, and and uh, I don't think they were really counting on him for many minutes. And so, you know, may, maybe he'll decide to redshirt if he wants to keep his career going as long as possible, um, but that'll be something that's sort of decided after the season. Yeah. Um, before I, I just, I'm not going to forget, and we don't need to get down the entire rabbit hole, but just because I was reading the thread before we came on here, the, the whole socks and chairs thing, the only question I had with all of that was, is it a pair of socks or is it each individual sock? I took like, it as are each, there, indi- each individual like, are, sock. Okay. So you each in there's not more pairs of socks in the world than chairs. There's each individual sock in the world. Yeah, that's that's what I took it as. But either way, like I still think there's some gray area here when everyone's counting like stools and um, arena seats and everything like that as chairs. Like I'm okay with it, but every bleacher seat, every airplane seat is now a chair, I guess. So that's fine. I still think it sucks, but I'm also finding out through talking about this that I might be in the 1% of sock owners in the world. Like I have at least 80 plus pairs of socks, I'd say like a ton of them. And so, like, I see other people saying like 10, 15, 20 pairs. It's like, I, I didn't realize. How, I was how do you get, get by? Yeah. How do you get by on that few socks? I, I don't know. It's a weird deal. As this has taught me a lot about the behavior patterns of others, to be quite honest. Who, who has 15 pairs of socks? That's what I've, I've seen like people saying 15, 20 pairs on like the replies and stuff. So I, I think like Skinny was saying he had like 20 pairs of this and 20 pairs of that or something. I don't know. I got like 15 pairs of athletic socks that I'll roll through. And then you got like the fun ones, like the Christmas ones. And then you break oh. out some in the summer. Yeah, see, I don't even really count like the dress socks. I've just got like 80 pairs of athletic socks, maybe more, maybe 100. (laughs) But also my thing is like before I go out of town, usually I just buy a new bag of socks instead of doing laundry. So that oh, that's fair. might be a problem on my part. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, If you can't tell, we've kind of ran out of things to talk about. So if you have questions you want to submit, now would be the time to get them in before we wrap this thing up here. Uh, We've been going for like 45 minutes. I feel like that's that's pretty good. But uh if you have any comments, I haven't seen anyone check in via Twitter, so I hope we're not just missing Twitter comments that aren't working I don't, or something. I don't think so. The problem is with Twitter that they uh, maybe they do laundry more free. Yeah, Joe, I, I I agree. That's what I'm finding out. Like I I admit that that's probably a me issue in terms of buying the socks before I leave town for trips, but I still feel like I got a lot of socks. Not bragging, I just do. I'm well, surprised people I've, live off of like 10 or 15 pairs of socks. That's just not, just I not don't, enough. No, what are you doing? Plus, like, don't you just wear through them? Like, aren't you, are you all have like nice wool socks that never wear out? I just feel like they'd be holes in them or something. Um, uh, shoot. I was going to say something like, oh, oh, the Twitter thing. Yeah. I don't think because Twitter got rid of, uh, Periscope, they ended their like partnership with Periscope a few months ago. So I don't know, uh, what the, uh, I don't know how you comment in anymore on, um, Periscope or on Twitter or however anybody's watching on Twitter live. It may be out on YouTube too, because if you, if you comment on YouTube, but that's, that's a future us thing. That's the next yeah. one down the road. I mean, the Facebook comments are working good. We've been able to pop those up. Yeah, this is great. As expected. So 
uh, I don't know. If you're trying to comment in on Twitter and it's not working, I, I do apologize. It does look like we are on YouTube too. So if you go to the Musketeer Report YouTube page, uh, you can get in there and comment there as well. Um, we've got another question. Who wins a one-on-one one -on -one tournament among Team 100? That's this year's team, right? Okay, hold on a second. I'm going to I'm going to say something here. I think there's some ambiguity on what team is team 100. Yeah, it was and last I, year's team but then like they just canceled it cuz of COVID, right? No, well, I wouldn't Okay, I don't know, but I when I was when I was there when I was still a student there 4 years ago, I spent one day in the office trying to go back and count the teams and do it backwards from the beginning i i think there's i don't know i yeah, think there's we, some discrepancies I, there's oh, this is a mario there, made thing this is a mario i think thing. there i think there may be some discrepancy on what team is team 100 but either way we're going to assume for this question that this year's team is team 100 and uh who wins a one-on-one -on -one? i'm gonna go with colby yeah, other than Kiki Tandy, but he's hurt. So that's probably Colby Jones is the answer right now. I know I know that's the answer, not the answer everyone wants to hear, but uh, I'd go with Colby, I think, as, as the winner. Yeah. Um, it'd probably who's your, be... Who's your number two then? Probably a Colby-Paul Scruggs finals, I would guess. Okay. You wouldn't toss Jack in there? I just think it's tough for big men in a one-on-one -on -one game. Yeah. I mean, but he'd, he'd have a chance. He's skilled enough. He could make a jumper or two. It's just tiring for bigs. You got to keep driving in on every possession and grinding it out. Guards yeah. are just hitting step back jumpers. I'm trying to think if I'm missing anybody here that might show a little flash. You know, Nate Johnson, Not... if he's hot, Nate Johnson just step back on you all day if he's feeling it. True. But I'm still sticking with Colby. Yeah. But probably, I mean, for me, when if I'm looking at one on one games, I'm looking at guys who can score off the dribble. And, you know, actually, the guy we're forgetting about right here is Dwan. Dwan would be really tough here, too. I think it, those three would be who would come down to. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, knowing we probably won't play 20 conference games, if we did, what's your record prediction is 12? And, I think 12 and 8 is very realistic. I mean, I'll be honest. I was on record right before the Big East season saying that Xavier was going to win the Big East or come in second. So, and I think they do that beyond a 12 and eight record. So I think now I will, that was before the break. That was before the pause. That was, that was, I mean, that was before the Villanova game. I said that, but I was on the record saying that, and I'm not going to stray too far away from it. Now, Providence has shown better than I think a lot of people thought Providence was going to be. So, and Xavier has always had trouble at Providence besides, I mean, they won that one with when JP hit that shot from the left wing, uh, you know, they, they've done that, but like just in general, Xavier's had trouble uh, at Providence. I think 12 and eight with a full schedule is very realistic. Now, what's not realistic is getting to 20 games at this point, but I think 12 and 8 with a full 20 game schedule is I, I almost I don't I, I might go so far as to say it's conservative. 
Yeah, I think 12 and 8 is very realistic. In fact, that's what you'd expect from this team, I think, at this point. If it's less than 12 and 8, if they were playing all 20, I think that would be a little bit disappointing, probably. Um, Ken Palm has them at 11 and 7 right now. So I'd basically say they went one and one against Georgetown and UConn, which I could have been talked into that, certainly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, 12 and 8 sounds right about on, Bob. I, I think that's very realistic. It wouldn't surprise me if they were slightly better than that, you know. 13 and seven if they played the full schedule out. But again, like Paul just said, I don't think they're actually going to get all the games in, unfortunately. Um, Brian says, anxious X fans, myself included, always worry with the Big East being so tough that X will lose a bunch more games. What Big East record do you think they need to qualify for the NCAA tourney? If we're just talking about just getting in, I think it's possible 500 gets it done. Oh, I, I, Five. Oh, I don't want to cut you off. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You go ahead. Well, I was going to say 500 easily gets it done if you if that 500 if the losses don't include DePaul, Georgetown, Butler. If you take care of Georgetown, you take care of Butler, and you take care of DePaul. If, if those are six of those 500 wins, you know the wins to get you to 500. Then, well, they're not going to be because Xavier's not going to play Georgetown twice unless they reschedule it. But that's looking right now so if you're if you're looking at five of those wins coming from those games with DePaul Butler Georgetown if you avoid those losses especially at home I mean I I think 500 easily if not if not one game under because if that would assume that you're picking off like you know Marquette on the road uh Seton Hall at least once uh maybe Villanova at home next week uh Providence once like those are all great wins and I think if you're just like and and this is the last thing I'm going to say and I said this when we started this stream if you're talking Brian about like you said Rick just getting in being a uh last four in in Dayton like they're they're well on there like this right now again this is like a a five seed type team if the season ended today that is a ton of leeway to just making it into Dayton. Yeah. I mean, you know, if let's say they're playing 18 games, they've already had two whacks. So let's say they play the 18 games total. If, the, if they win nine more games, they're at 20 wins on the season. And they have already have the three quad one wins. Now one or two of those are borderline. They could flip flop as the season goes on, but for the most part, they're going to have probably three, four, five quad one wins on the season. If they end up in that situation, that's going to be enough to get them into the tournament. That's a better resume than they had last year by a long shot. So, um, yeah, I think 500 would definitely get them in. Brian says, concerned we are going to fall into a situation of last year where we stay healthy early, then COVID issues mid-conference play. Biggie's not being flexible and letting healthy teams play. Others, when they are healthy, could really screw us. Yeah, I mean, Brian, it's, unfortunately, no one can control it, and the timing of it can end up screwing you, and there's nothing you can really do about it. But – that's that's what I said earlier is I think the bigger concern about these stoppages isn't so much that you have to stop and sit for two weeks. So let's be honest, Xavier's players just got a little bit of a reprieve during the holiday break, something they don't typically get. I'm sure it wasn't the worst thing in the world for these guys. They'd like to be playing games, but this probably wasn't the worst timing for it all to happen, to have a little bit of extra time off, maybe an extra day or two that they, they didn't have to spend practicing. But if you have to play games later when you don't have your one of your top players or a couple of your top players, and you're just saying, yeah, we have seven to play. So we're going to go ahead and play it. 
that's where you really get a chance to get screwed in all of this. And there's not much you can do about it unless you want to pull a Yukon. Yeah. Bob says, Brian, I think 10 and 10 would guarantee getting in. So yeah, I mean, he agrees. Yeah. Uh, going back to the one-on-one conversation, <laughs> I don't know who would win in one-on-one between Jonas and Dante. I think that's Jonas. No question. I don't, I don't really think that's close. So fun fact, uh, Dan, I remember Dante, uh, I don't know. I, I would say, oh, fun fact. I was, I was going to say, I don't know. I don't know. Jo- yeah. Jonas, I think would just be too big. It's the SEC, Paul. <laughs> oh man. I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. Although I haven't seen Dante or Jonas shoot around as much as I've seen Dante recently shoot around. And that's how you know that Jonas would win. Like real players don't shoot come out of nowhere. That's true. Yeah, that's I a mean, great that's, point, Rick. Yeah, yeah. That's a great point. All right, we're almost at an hour here. If there are any more questions, we'll take another one or two. But uh, this, I think, this went well. This will be something that we can sure. continue doing. It it adds to the podcast, especially in a situation like this where there's just not a lot of basketball to actually talk about. Normally, we could carry it a little bit more on our own, but uh, this hasn't really allowed us to do so since they haven't been playing any games. Um, Bob says, any concern Cesar others transfer due to depth going into next year? I don't think Cesar is a – well, first of all, everyone's a transfer concern, I guess. Yes, there's, there should be concern every year that guys are going to transfer, but it's really not that much of a concern at this point. It's just a way of life in college basketball. Um, as far as Cesar goes, I don't think so. I mean, I think they, they have big plans for him being a part of their team going forward. He's aware of that. I don't think he's going anywhere specifically, um, but for others, yeah, absolutely. There, there will definitely be someone who transfers off of this team after this year. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Yeah. All right, Rick. Well, uh, do you want to you want to wrap this up here? Yeah, I don't see any more questions. So uh, thank you for all of you that did send questions in. I think that went well. I like the little uh, pop-up on the screen there. So hopefully people watching back can know what we're talking about. If you're confused during the listening to the audio version of this, when we put it posted as a podcast, let us know how we can maybe be more helpful throughout the, and inform yeah. you of what's going on on the screen because this is kind of a visual thing with the, the comments getting popped up there. I think we did a good job of reading them, but maybe there's a better way we can inform you why we're changing topic of conversation so quickly like that um, yeah but, sure you know there's a few other features here that i think we'll be able to use as we go forward with this yeah we can do it again especially after a game or, or a road game or something like that when we can uh have a lot to more to talk about on the court um but uh yeah this is a good first little run here rick so thanks to everybody for listening